We need metaphorical coffins. I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse in the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, another chat show, David. Uh, let's see. We're back at it, Daniel. Don't know what we're going to talk about, but we got an email. Last week we did a show on lumber, and someone reached out to us about that show. Somebody far more qualified than either of us, actually, to, to speak about a lumber or a related forestry questions. You have an email. Hey, Daniel and David. I'm a graduate student down in North Carolina studying silvicultural management. That's that word you introduced, David. Uh, I still can't say it right. I first want to say that I agree with your central thesis from the last show that forest management is generally exploitative and ecologically damaging. Sustainable forestry is by far and large bullshit for a number of reasons. Uh, Most companies don't actually follow SFI or FSC guidelines, or they have very cozy relationships with auditors who certify their forests as sustainable. However, I think some of your characterizations are inaccurate, and there's actually a lot more that's bad about the forest industry than what you guys talked about. One really integral part of Southern forestry are product classification of timber and the commiserate price fluctuations. Another important part of the equation are the economics of harvesting that influences when and how large timberland holders cut and the breakdown of who owns most timberland in the U.S., And oh, um, I didn't mention this last show, but just to piggyback off of what this person's saying, I think 40% of all timberland in the South, the the Southern United States is privately owned, uh, which has a big impact on how fast it gets logged because a lot of times loggers come in and as long as the owner agrees to their price, they can just go ahead. Okay, back to the listener, Um, blah, 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 investor profit versus financing state pensions. Another interesting topic is what most timber gets used to make, toilet paper and diapers. (laughs) I didn't actually know that, David. Uh, It's a good point, though. I think there's a lot of good points in this email, things that we should have covered. But can can I just stop for one second and take like a soapbox moment here? Well, David, it's only fair you let me step on the soapbox a couple weeks ago. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if a soapbox is the right word, but maybe shilling. I want to really recommend everyone go out and buy a bidet. It'll change your life. You can get these real cheap for like a very basic one for like 20 or $30 on uh, some of these big retailers that are online and uh, takes just a couple minutes to install, maybe 15 minutes. If, if you're like, don't know anything at all about plumbing, it's very easy. And oh my God, it changes your life, Daniel. Uh, I'm going to have to take your word uh, for it, David. Well, let me, let me, let me, well. And I've been to your place before and I've seen it, but I just didn't even know where to start. So I just kind of let it be. I mean, they're intimidating at first, especially if you've never seen one or anything. But I mean, let me just use this analogy that was used on me. That's what convinced me to buy a bidet. And that is, if you got shit on your hands... You wouldn't just wipe it off with a paper towel and be like, okay, I'm clean now. No, you wash that shit with water. And you should do the same thing with your ass. And so 
in the interest of cleanliness and also in the interest of environmental friendliness, I save so much money and time going out and buying toilet paper all the time. Now I don't have to do that. Uh, just one little tiny square to dry off. And uh, it's good for the environment. It's good for the earth. It's good for the forest. <sighs> and uh, I'm cleaner and fresher because of this. So everybody should go out and, and buy a bidet. Okay. Well, I didn't expect to be having this conversation with you, <laughs> you on the podcast, David. But uh, So you mentioned uh, you're saving money on uh, toilet paper, but how do you how do you get dry after well, the bidet does its thing? So like it, it would have taken, for example, several uh, sheets of toilet paper to make yourself clean before. But uh, now it's just like one small one, maybe like two small squares to dry off and then you're done. That's it. Easy. So what would have been, you know, 10, 20, maybe more uh, squares is now just one or two. So you're using your toilet paper 10 to 20 times less than you were before. It's great. All right. That's awesome. Do it for the earth. (laughs) For the earth. Well, let's see what we want to talk about, David, today. I have just a concept that I want to cover It's something that I came across when we were researching for the Lumber Show. Remember, we had that section where I asked, like, what is the point of all these sustainability officers? And I was curious which companies actually had these sustainable officers or sustainability departments. And I was looking up some mining companies and I went straight to De Beers Group. You know, De Beers, probably the most, the number one diamond uh, sourcer and supplier in the world. And I was looking at their leadership structure. I could not find a sustainability department for that company. But what I did find is on their homepage for the De Beers Group, not De Beers, like the jewelry retail uh, website, is a bunch of photos of Africans, smiling Africans, and a link to the De Beers Group, like empowering women and African entrepreneur program. Hmm. I I think... My warning bells are going off where you're about to take this. Yeah. Uh, so it turns out they partner with the United Nations on some program that's aimed at empowering communities and women through entrepreneurship. And I found the page on the United Nations website where they report, quote, De Beers Group and United Nations Entity for Women for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, or UNW, South Africa are pleased to announce the launch of a capacity-building program to support 500 women micro-entrepreneurs in the communities of Blueberg, I might be mispronouncing that, and Musina near De Beers' Venetia Mine in Limpopo. The key objective of the program is to equip women micro-entrepreneurs with business management and life skills to build their confidence and capacity to operate and grow successful small businesses. Uh, It goes on, here is a quote by the Deputy CEO of De Beers Consolidated Mines Incorporated. Quote, in each of the areas we have selected, high levels of unemployment persist (laughs) and formal job opportunities are limited. In this kind of context, micro enterprises provide an opportunity for income generation to support households as well as job creation that can benefit a community more broadly. When we empower women business owners, we empower entire communities. What do you think about that, David? Uh, well, I, listening to it, I, I find myself getting a little bit sad that the only way we can seem to ever think about how to help people or use that, that word that we love to use over and over again, empower people, 
is by making them little tiny tyrants over other people and extracting, you know, whatever they can in terms of labor or resources from them and their own form of exploitation. And and that's how we give them a, a step up in life by uh, teaching them how to exploit others just the same way that we came and exploited them. And that's the cycle of life. That's the nature of how we operate. And that's the only way that business, um, and unfortunately, a lot of times states can foresee themselves offering people who have been exploited to the point of a uh, catastrophe a leg up. And that's, that's kind of sad. Yeah, that's a good point that, you know, I like how you said tyrant, because we look at these international corporations, like De Beers Group is the quintessential villain, right? They literally go into poverty-stricken countries, and they exploit that to mine diamonds out of the earth using all types of slavery and exploitation and uh, bribery for licenses and things like that. And even if... And, and real quick, before people jump down our throat about that word slavery, uh, wage slavery is a form of slavery, so uh, step up off our back, please. Well, we talked about real slavery, like direct, I mean, even worse than wage slavery, like I don't want to say more real, more real in the consequences in uh, episode 36, Slaves to Progress. And we specifically talk about mining and a lot that goes on in the African continent, which even if you look at the flagship mine that I'm sure De Beers would be happy to show you and its investors, there's a lot of activity around that that is created by the way they conduct their business, oftentimes uh, lying on the source of their diamonds, maybe moving it across borders to repackage it, all types of mm -hmm. clever loopholes to show that they're doing things in a, I guess, a better way than using direct slaves. But it really comes down to that in a lot of cases. But I think it even goes further than that because, okay, so De Beers Group mentioned, oh, we're trying to solve poverty and bad unemployment in these regions. And specifically, they're doing this program in the very countries that they're doing mining, uh, specifically Canada, Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. And it's a paradox because they are the problem, right, in the first place. Uh, you know, beyond that slavery, we also talk about in episode 59, Bankrupt Ethics, about a report showing how some $45 billion is siphoned out of the African continent every single year directly by international companies just like De Beers who cheat taxes, lie on their import and export logs, and again, use that bribery to secure undervalued leases and licenses for their mines. So to say we're going to empower other people to be, in your words, uh, more tyrants uh, running around really uh, sidesteps the whole root cause of the poverty in the first place, which is companies exploiting vulnerable people abroad. Which uh, leads me to another part of this conversation, David, because as I was thinking about this, you know, we talk a lot about how companies break things apart to get at the value that they can accumulate then as profit. And it is the process of breaking things apart which erodes everything around us, whether that's the environment, our society, our culture, our families. And last week was a great example of that, physically tearing a forest apart to get at lumber, which is a very simplified extraction of that forest that leaves the forest destroyed for the benefit of profit accumulation in the hands of a few people who own the lumber companies. But I was thinking about how this plays out in communities themselves, right? And it occurred to me this question. When it comes to communities of people in different countries or across the world, how do you make money off of them if you don't know them? How do you make money off of people 
that you don't understand their culture, their history, their taboos, their likes, their dislikes, their traditions. How do you make money off of those people, David? So, so you're saying no, not in like, oh yeah, his name is Bill and he does his thing, but you're saying no, and it's like, we don't even understand how they live their lives, uh, what type of consumer habits they might have, um, what they value culturally, blah, blah, blah. All, all of these details that, that are larger than uh, just uh, this assumption that, you know, what people want in the West is what they want elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Like the the hidden subtle behaviors, like when I go to your house to hang out as friends, these are the habits we partake in and that's your opportunity to introduce some product, right? But if you don't know those habits, you don't know how people interact, you don't know what they think, how they perceive, then you have a problem. And so there's a couple ways around this. Number one, you could simply learn about them and then offer products tailored to them. And, and I want to come back to that. But in terms of this empowering entrepreneurs in countries around the world, I think there's a second option, which is, remember that episode we did on Facebook, David? The one where Facebook is trying to install free internet in the developing world in order to harvest all this information and control what information is available to people in order to better profit off of them? That was episode 15, Terms of Service. Yes, uh, that episode. Yeah, I remember a little. Well, that wasn't the only thing we talked about, David. We also talked about the way they manipulate psychological studies, conduct psychological studies in the first place, all the privacy and, and whatnot. But there was an interesting chapter of that episode where we talked about the way that Facebook crushes competition. And one of the ways they do that is they have a platform by which people can start businesses. They can start apps, they can start software, whatever, that utilizes the Facebook network to grow their business. And the interesting thing about that is that in the process of creating these businesses, Facebook has all the data on not just how the business operates, how it is created, the code that goes on behind it, but also how many people come to it, how do they engage, when do they leave, all these very vital business statistics and data, right? And then what Facebook does is when it notices a business taking off, oh, the, a new app just came out and it has a thousand percent growth over just a couple weeks. Well, the company then, Facebook, is in a very advantageous position where it can make one of two choices, assuming it's taking the unethical position. One, it could buy that company out, right? Could approach you, the, the new owner of this app and say, look, we're going to throw you some money and give us the app and we're going to integrate it into our portfolio of businesses. Or number two, because it has every single data point on your business, David, and it has infinitely more money than you, it could just copy that business, replicate your models for success, and just drive you out of business because it has more money than you. It can scale at a much faster rate, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder, David, if this exact same thing is not playing out with these empowering entrepreneurs and women in so-called developing and third world countries, where I don't know how these people operate. I don't know what they like, they dislike. I don't know their traditions or their culture. So I'm going to use my philanthropic budget to encourage entrepreneurs in this community. And I'm going to guide them and I'm going to teach them. And I'm going to show them how to evaluate the cost-benefit analyses of all the ideas they come up with. And then guess who's first in line in witnessing which initiatives are successful and which are not. Well, 
your friendly neighborhood De Beers Group representative with all the money that diamonds can buy. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever De Beers. Daniel, that's a devious uh, plan and a uh, bold uh, accusation, but uh, I could see this playing out sort of similar to how you're saying where uh, these companies are using less fortunate people and under the guise of empowerment, they're basically turned into lab rats. And uh, what works, what sticks can be profited off of, and uh, what doesn't can be safely ignored. Yeah. But that's the, uh, the system that we've built and that's the uh, Darwinian world that we live in. Uh, where people want survival of uh, what they say is the fittest, but what we know better is actually those with the most access to capital and to information. And in this case, that is absolutely, of course, the exploitative De Beers company. And it's, of course, not just De Beers, but the global economic imperative, right? I mean, we've talked about this in so many ways, the way, you know, like the World Bank, for example, encourages pushing rural farmers in developing countries into cities, right? Because that's where the technology is. That's where the surveillance is. That's where the software uh, applications, the, you know, all the hookups to monitor these people and integrate them into the financial economy. It's why every major nation has a developing arm going into other countries and, you know, doing so-called philanthropic development when really it's a way of opening up untapped markets. And I think it's a really big win for this economic imperative because, again, not only are you finding new ways to invest your money and exploit people, but you're also pushing this narrative of the way we're going to save people in, as if they need saving in the first place. All these communities, these rural farmers out in the middle of nowhere, right? We're going to save them by teaching them how to be entrepreneurs and business owners when All that does is deflect the real problems that are rampant in our world, which is businesses in the first place. And I think there's a big cognitive dissonance here where, on the one hand, people are going to climate strike and saying, we need to change. We need to stop letting the oil companies destroy our world. And we need to stop letting international corporations burn the Amazon rainforest for profit accumulation. But then at the same time, we watch Netflix shows about how billionaires are saving the world by encouraging business owners. And really, all they're doing is finding ways to invest their money and pursue the narrative and push the narrative that economic growth is the real solution. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you point to the climate march as a signifier that things are changing, that people want something else. But I want to remind you, Daniel, that in New York City, which was the largest climate march in the United States, um, I think it might have been one of the largest ones in the world that day, there were 300,000 people on the streets. A lot came from out of town, um, but a lot were from you know the greater New York area, which New York City itself, between all five boroughs, is 8 million people. The greater area is, I don't know, 20 million, something like that. And New York City released all the students that day to go to the climate march if they wanted. So that's hundreds of thousands of kids that could have been there. So you're talking of a place of millions of people, of millions of what should be some of the most concerned people, because many parts of New York will quite literally be underwater. It has this reputation, this is educated, progressive place for better or for worse. And let me tell you uh, firsthand, that is absolutely not true much of the time, but that is not a whole lot of those people that should be on the streets, that should be caring already. And uh, and like I said, you know, this is the place where that number should be 100%. 
or at least very close to that. And of course, you know, I think this really shows that this mindset that you're talking about only exists in a small minority. And it's up to us as uh, people who do know what's going on, uh, all the listeners of the show, uh, people who are consuming this climate change content, who understand uh, these systemic issues that threaten all of our well-beings to try and increase the number as much as possible, because we're fighting a very huge uphill battle right now. Uh, you mentioned this idea that we should move people uh, from rural areas to, to uh, cities, that a lot of businesses want to do this, but I see these types of comments all the time. Earlier today, I was reading Hacker News because I was trying to uh, abuse myself by reading these horrible comments that these tech bro Silicon Valley nutters think that they know the world should work because they happen to be good on a computer. Not necessarily good on a computer, but they think they are. And there were so many comments there where people very logically were saying, oh, you know, in areas like the Bay Area, productivity is much higher than other places. I don't know what they measured productivity as, but that was the stat they were throwing out. So we could actually dramatically increase GDP without increasing the consumption side, thus preserving the earth. If we could just displace people from rural, low productivity areas and put them in cities in the Bay Area, all we need is a massive building program and then we can dramatically increase the, the U.S.'s GDP and uh, increase our productivity and everyone will benefit with a higher standard of living without having to damage all the inputs going to the system or some like whack out thing where they get so narrowed down on just some specific logical statistic that they really are blindsided by these huge systemic issues that make what they're talking about quite literally a fantasy. These people are so out of touch and they can only see the world through this a specific lens that business has generated and said is the only way to look at things, uh, productivity, but the bottom line, GDP, these are the only metrics that, that in their eyes deserve uh, paying attention to. But things like quality of life, which can't be easily measured, uh, the suffering that happens in cities, the, the vast uh, inequality that is exploding in places, especially like the Bay Area, oh, that doesn't get any, any mention except for the fact that uh, I hate all these homeless people. Let's put boulders on the sidewalk to keep them from being able to, to camp here because it's a disturbing view for me as I walk to my uh, six-figure tech job. This is the kind of uh, people that we're dealing with, that we're up against, not just, you know, like comic book villain companies like De Beers, but, I mean, these, these are the, the moneyed progressive class in some of the most uh, liberal cities in America. We are fighting a very uphill battle, and uh, just getting people to realize the exploitative nature of everything they do is a huge, huge step. And then getting them to do something about that instead of just leaning into it and embracing it once they realize that is a whole nother ballgame. We're so far behind in the terms of attack and changes that we need to be making in order to see any sort of real substantive change that it's honestly a little depressing. But every little bit helps. Uh, every day we get a little bit closer with this, but we really need to fucking crank it up. I think the, the reason... For uh, tech people <laughs> saying things like this, David, that you're calling a fantasy, has a lot to do with what Wendell Berry was talking about in that quote we read last week about how the modern economy necessarily separates people and places and products from their histories. And those of us who participate in the modern economy do so because we are separated from our families and our habitats and our histories. <laughs> And should we be surprised, David, that the type of people advocating for fantasies are the ones who see their bank accounts go up $500,000 a year by creating apps? I mean, you know, there's a lot within our economy that is currently a fantasy in its current manifestation that, that it cannot be sustained. But those who are caught in it, I guess I'm not really surprised that they can imagine a fantasy future when the present is, is one as well. 
But you know, I'm up here in Massachusetts now, David, and and I've been uh, going to a lot more farmers markets. And I can tell you right now that where I was in Atlanta, I was in the suburbs. I shopped at the big supermarket chains. I drove my car everywhere, and I still have a lot of the same habits. But just being in a different area where I'm much more connected to the land in in ways that I've never been before has really already kind of radically changed my life. I mean, I'm eating vegetables for the first time. <laughs> um, I think I might finally make the jump to vegetarianism because I go to these farmer's markets and I, I'm seeing vegetables I've never seen before. And all of a sudden I'm inspired to go home and roast them and just see what they taste like, right? Like rainbow carrots and all these different kinds of squashes that I've never eaten before. And yeah, it's much easier to be a vegetarian eating only vegetables when the vegetables and fruits actually taste good. Unlike most of the stuff you're forced to buy in these crappy uh, big box grocery stores you find, especially in the suburbs where everything is very pretty, but has absolutely no taste. Right. Um, the other day I ate a raw sweet corn. Nice. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty good. It tastes like sweet milk or something. I don't, it's hard to explain, but I was hungry. I was talking to the farmer at the market and they had a bunch of sweet corn. I was like, let me get one of those sweet corns and let me just eat it because I'm hungry. It was great. So I guess my point is the more our lives resemble fantasy, the more they're separated from land, from the products of that land, the things that we eat come from the land, but the more separated we are from it, the, the less we understand about the need to protect and to preserve the earth by living out lives and supporting an economy that doesn't destroy it and exploit it every chance it gets. And it's kind of hard to see that unless you're there. And I guess that's one of the great successes of our modern economy is separating people from that land so that those that grow up in this very industrial, modern, sprawled out way just don't even realize what's going on. And, and we obviously talk about that at length in our suburb episodes and, and so many others. But Well, yeah, it's, it's that concept that keeps coming up over and over again is for most of us, we have no idea what we've lost. What we never had a chance to experience because we've never grown up in a place where we can, either because these animals or these, these nature scenes or whatever have gone straight up extinct or in numbers so small that they might as well be, or because we are so cut off from these places where we never leave the city or don't have a choice to, or we can't live and experience life in a rural place and instead choose to mock it for whatever reason, that uh, we never have a chance to be connected or to understand uh, what a connection to the land and, or, or a connection to a place or community might even be. You know, we're coming up just from the very beginning with, without a chance because uh, it's been sort of denied to us. And we have to really fight back against that constantly and try and get this thing that we, we can't even really describe. We can't put our hands on it, but we know inside that something is missing. And so we try and fill that with so many things, commodities and experiences uh, but uh, it never is enough. We're always reaching for more. I see this all the time in New York City, especially. And I really think that that connection to land and place and community and people and uh, understanding what we are originally on this earth is uh, a huge, huge component of that. Yeah. Well, I want to bring it back to the start of this conversation and circle back to this entrepreneurship topic. And I want to throw one more variable in here, which is social science. So we were talking about entrepreneurship and how do you take advantage of communities? And one of those ways was to uh, co-opt the entrepreneurs that you empower and, and shift this narrative. But then the other one was to learn about the communities that you want to uh, target. 
And so, well, first of all, David, what, what is social science? What is the purpose of social science? I mean, I, I guess to study people and the hope that you at some point will have a better understanding of them. I'm not really sure what the like, exact dictionary uh, formal definition is. What do you think Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, thinks of social science? He thinks it's for uh, losers and weak men and should be uh, banned from his country. <laughs> yeah, he actually tried a couple months ago or he mentioned that he was going to completely eradicate the social sciences from Brazilian universities. And it begs the question, why does he want to do that? I think it has a lot to do with what you were describing as the purpose of social science, which is to, uh, besides examine people, I think in general we can say it's to observe the systems that make up our lives, whether those are the political, cultural, or social, or economic systems, right? And so, if you're someone like Jair Bolsonaro who wants to rule the world by destroying forests and just going crazy on resource extraction, you don't want people to examine the systems that govern their lives. You don't want people peeking behind the curtain of power and class. And so if you want to stop that, I guess there's two ways to go around it for someone who's in power. First, you could go the route of uh, Bolsonaro or other people like Donald Trump and just go to war on the world and with fire and totalitarian authority. But another way is to simply co-opt the very people who would be your enemies. And you know th this goes back to episode 11, designing deception about public relations men who seek to redesign our world from behind closed doors and kind of orchestrate the behaviors of the very thought leaders and celebrities that we look up to to influence our own behavior. Well, David, I want to introduce you to a conference called Epic 2019. This is the premier global conference on ethnography in business being hosted this year in Rhode Island in November. It has a current waiting list of several hundred people. I mean, this is a very, very hot conference. Um, from their website, quote, Epic people draw on tools and resources from the social sciences and humanities, as well as design thinking, agile, lean startup, and other approaches to realize value for corporations from understanding people and their practices. Epic promotes the use of ethnographic principles to create business value. We are a diverse global community of practitioners who build deep understandings of people and their practices to ensure that innovation, strategies, processes, and products are anchored in what matters to people in their everyday lives. End quote. It sounds like a bunch of marketing speak to me. And, and the theme of the conference this year, David, is, quote, agency. What does it mean to have agency in an increasingly automated world? And so there's something interesting happening, which is uh, technology companies are starting to pay attention to the value social scientists play in understanding people and social relations. And they're using these people to help inform how best to tailor technology products to different demographics of the global population, like user experience of products and software. And, and the idea, I think, is that those tech people living in the Bay Area with their fantasies they don't really know anything about how to relate to real people, right? I think you <laughs> demonstrated that pretty clearly, David, that the software engineers of Silicon Valley probably aren't the best people to go to in terms of how to understand uh, diverse communities. But social scientists, well, that's their job. So I, I just want to read 
uh, just a couple things that I found on the schedule of this conference. Okay, David. Okay. So here's a panel. It's called Reconceptualizing Privacy. And here's a quote. Algorithmic systems are increasingly integrated into the physical and digital infrastructures of our lives. The borders of privacy are being pushed and redefined, provoking new debates about what privacy is. All corporations claim privacy is important, but what does that mean? Panelists will explore what privacy might look like or mean when individuals are tied into multiple networks, both human and artificial intelligence. Sounds like an interesting panel, right, David? Sure. <laughs> well, who do you think is on the panel? I'll, give, uh, I'll let you guess. There's four people. If you get all four, I'll be super impressed. Okay, well, I think this is a loaded question, so I'm going to say uh, Mark Zuckerberg, um, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, uh, who else, who else? Uh, Joseph Mengele, and um, uh, Edward Bernays. You got one of the four. Well, kind of one of the four. Okay, so let me tell you. We have Jeff Sokolov of IBM, Elena O'Curry, Senior User Research for Uber. I- IBM made uh, Holocaust uh, equipment, so that counts as, as Mengele. Peter Levin of Autodesk, and the one you, you pretty much got right, David, Liz Kaneski, the head of privacy research at Facebook Incorporated. Head of privacy research. Uh, I guess the uh, head of how to violate privacy department didn't sound so good uh, or didn't quite fit on a uh, business card. So <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of reaching for how to uh, put this into perspective, David, because I, I just think we live in an interesting world where one of the leading conferences of, of social science in terms of integrating with business has panels on privacy being presented by Facebook, which, which we know and what we talk about is the quintessential example of a company who violates privacy every chance they get. And, and it really begs the question, like, why is this marriage between social science and technology even happening in this way in the first place? And, and I found an, an article by an anthropologist who spoke at South by Southwest last year, and she has an opinion on why marketers and these technology companies are so interested in these social scientists. In this article she wrote titled, Anthrospectacle at South by Southwest, How Anthropology Captured the Imagination of Marketing Tech. And her answers are essentially that social scientists can help tactical marketing companies see the bigger picture. They help connect the dot between all this big data that companies are so uh, inundated with. Quote, sure, advertisers now have better views into which half of their advertising is wasted, but they still do not know why. Marketing professionals are realizing they need to understand this thing called context. End quote. And finally, she says, all these advertising companies, well, they come across as creepy for spying on everyone, right? Uh, It's not a good look. No. But and so if they don't change their business model, either regulation is going to do it for them or customers are simply going to get <laughs> fed up and, and uh, the company will go under. So the solution, in the author's opinion, is for companies to hire social scientists. Quote, privacy, data, personalization, and value are fundamentally cultural phenomena. Perhaps now is the time big and thick data researchers can ask better questions together. Do you ever feel like we as a society are being gaslit a little bit, David? <laughs> That's literally my everyday, uh, like I wake up in the morning, I'm like, damn, I'm being gaslit all day. 
uh, go to sleep. I'm like, fuck, I got gaslit like crazy all day long. Yeah, of course. It, that's, that's what advertising is. It's gaslighting. Yeah, it is. Because like when it comes to surveillance, for example, we're all being just gaslit into believing this is the way the world works. And now technology companies are paying social scientists big money to drive that point home. But all of these initiatives start with a fundamental assumption that we live in a, quote, surveillance world or, hey, we live in a big data world now. Uh, we better get used to it. Or, or how can we work together? You know, we have people from Facebook and IBM standing on, on the stage saying, oh, isn't it interesting? We live in a, a big data world, a big surveillance world. Well, how can we improve everyone's experience in a big surveillance world? In fact, there's a title of a paper from one of the researchers being featured at this conference who herself is an employee of Facebook, and her paper is titled Ethnographic Agency in a Data-Driven World. But David, (laughs) this is the type of language I'm talking about that's gaslighting us because in reality, we don't live in a data-driven world. We don't live in a big data world. We don't live in a surveillance world. We live in a world where companies and the people behind them are very intentionally creating mass surveillance products and shoving them down our throats, our homes, our cars, our pockets, and every square inch of our lived reality. This, this, this is not a passive reality like the fact that we live in an, an oxygen-rich world. <laughs> Although I guess it's uh, increasingly a carbon-rich world, but uh, maybe I'm going to contradict myself here. But, <laughs> but, but the point is, we don't need agency in a data-driven world. What we need is a world where companies are not harvesting data from our lives and dismantling cultural and social relationships to better harvest that data in the first place. I don't need agency to walk down a store aisle knowing I'm being watched by a facial recognition and tracking camera that's uploading every bit of my personal information to an international data broker. What I need are the collective tools to put those companies that are selling facial recognition software to the highest bidders out of business. You know, I I don't need agency in a surveillance world. I need to destroy the companies that are, are creating those products. And I think we're being gaslit into this this assumption that oh, this is just the way things are. This is the world we live in. Now we got to make the best of it. Why not instead of uh, figuring out how we can improve the business models of of companies that shouldn't exist? Why don't we just put them out of business? Why can't we just say, hey, there are some companies that should not exist, and we have the power to prevent that. Why not at the same time we're, we're yelling for a Green New Deal, we also advocate for a deal that makes it illegal to create surveillance products or makes it illegal to mine oil out of the ground. We don't need incentives. We need coffins for you know, like conceptual coffins. <laughs> Ooh, that's Meta- that, metaphorical coffins. That's a good line, but that, that's also good saves. So uh, we can leave that in there. But unfortunately, David... Uh, the narrative being presented to us and, and being uh, molded into our thought leaders uh, are trying to erase those options from our imaginations and mass surveillance and, and these types of things. That's not even to mention all the questionable software being handed over to questionable governments for things like autonomous weapon systems, you know, something we talk about in uh, episode 29, War Machine. And this is Ashes, Ashes. A show about this awful dystopian hellscape that we've created. Autonomous weapon systems, drug-resistant pathogens, boundless AI. Enhance this. Cyber attacks. Massive blackouts. You know, listeners, one of us is automated. I'll leave it as an exercise to the audience to figure out if it's either Daniel or me. 
Whoever seems less human is probably the one that is most human. Yeah, that's what a robot would say. Education is a scam. They're grifting us. This student loan debt will never escape. We'll be employed forever and have no jobs anyway because the robots all took them and they'll beat us in the acid mines with whips to mine acid for the robot batteries. That's a scary future, David. It certainly is. It's scary until I get control of my military, my lethal autonomous military. Then you'll all know fear. Wait, what? Or spying on activists for things as simple as uh, protesting against a tax on large-sized sugary drinks, as the Mexican government has done in the past. You know, it's a shame, though, Daniel, that we do have all this this incredible intellectual power at these uh, ethnographer conferences that these uh, companies are using this skill and knowledge that these ethnographers can offer. And instead of, of trying to take that and turn it into something that's marketable, something that could help them increase their bottom line, increase their exploitation of these people's attention or other things. Uh, what if instead we use that for what I think is the actual reason to have the social sciences in the first place, to go back to your question a little while ago for me, and that is to understand people in order to build empathy for them and, and understanding the individual populations around the world uh, really, truly understanding them and viewing them not as something to exploit or something to try and teach them the, the quote-unquote right way of doing things or the right way of living or give them, you know, technology, uh, cultural or otherwise, is uh, the wrong way of doing it. But understanding that they are living in a specific way that, if it's untouched by our influences, is good by itself. You know, there's a reason for that, and it's not the wrong way just because it's something that we don't initially understand is important. That empathy that builds up is important. The empathy that understanding populations around the world is fundamental in order for us to build a world that is inclusive in its solutions, that does uh, empower populations around the world and doesn't just concentrate capital and power and information and uh, everything that goes along with that with a very small, powerful group of people in a very small physical place. And, and, you know, right now, of course, that is Silicon Valley in terms of this conversation about these specific companies, but also of the global West and all this idea, but better distributing that power, uh, better distributing the solutions for the problems that we here in the developed world have created is going to take that, that empathy, that understanding of populations, especially indigenous populations around the world. Um, and we're going to have to make the sacrifices here to make up for all the terrible damage that we've already done to them and is going to increase as time goes on and we see uh, further fallout from our actions. And ethnographers, uh, social sciences are fundamental in that process. And I think that's why Brazil wants them eliminated because they're in this action right now of what might at some point turn into genocide, but is definitely right now uh, environmental genocide that is destroying the ways of life of huge amounts of indigenous people. And not understanding them, looking at them as primitive, is fundamental in people willing to do that destruction against them. And, and this is something that's repeated time and time around the world. If we don't understand people around the world, then it's that much easier for us to exploit them. If we don't understand people in our own world, then it's that much easier to exploit them. If I in a city don't understand the rural way of life, it's that much easier for me to say, fuck them. They don't know what they're doing. They're primitive idiots. Uh, they're the problems, not me, even though my lifestyle is probably far more destructive than anything they're doing to the world. So understanding populations, 
which is something that social science and ethnographers really offer us as their their value proposition to pull a word out of uh, these companies' playbook is hugely important, and we should encourage that. Uh, but we should not allow that that information to be turned against us. And like everything we have these days, information is power, but it can be used for good or for evil. And uh, you know, unfortunately, like you mentioned, Daniel, good is losing, but it doesn't mean it has to keep going that way. Well, let's talk about the future. Let's let's talk about the immediate future. Uh, in in terms of uh, this show, to limit it, because we do a lot of talking about the future. I think at this point, most people understand what we, we visualize and what we want to see. But let's limit this to the Ashes Ashes future for one second. So a couple months ago, we started preparing for a border series. And we did like six different interviews. We went to El Paso and then we went to Tucson and we visited the Sonoran Desert. And all this so that we could create uh, a few shows on the topic. But then I moved up to Massachusetts, and uh, now I have a, another job. So I've been working two jobs and in addition to this show. So three jobs, David. Three jobs, yeah. So it's been slow. It's oh, we've been procrastinating, and now I feel like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we've fallen behind, and now I'm just very, I'm very, very scared. Yeah. We've fallen behind on what we think is a really important show on the show that we're already really proud of, even though it's just still taking shape. And so uh, we want to finish these episodes up. We want to do it right, and uh, we don't want to keep pushing them off because we feel they're extremely timely, and the situation changes literally day-to-day at some points here. Uh, And so we are, and I'm announcing this here, going to take a few weeks off to finish these episodes. So you might not hear from us for a couple, maybe a few weeks going forward, but don't worry, we're not off the air. Uh, This is a break. Uh, Maybe you can consider this the end of season two, if we had seasons. But we will be back, and we will be back with a bang dropping several episodes all about the border, about the migration crisis, about migrants as a whole, all at once. And I am so excited for these episodes. We learned so much stuff uh, and we have so much to share. And I think these are, these are going to be really great and really important. Yeah. And of course, my codependency issues makes me feel like we're letting the listeners down. And uh, I apologize to everyone who, who is supporting us through Patreon. If you can't stand a couple week break, you are more than happy to adjust your pledge. Um, although it does support us a great deal and we do appreciate that. But yeah, I just, I feel like it's hard to do both. You know, I feel like I need to say, okay, we're going to dedicate our time to building these shows out, recording them uh, without feeling pressure to get another deep dive episode every week or every two weeks out. So I, I think it'll be good. Yeah, it's going to be worth it. We promise. They're going to be a little bit different than our normal format, but we're really excited about them. And if any of you have media contacts, um, we're interested in maybe seeing who might be able to help us promote or, or distribute or platform these series so that we're not just dumping three or four, however many they are, episodes on you all just in the podcast app. But if you know any media platforms that could help uh, promote that for us, uh, get in touch. And uh, we can't wait to share them with you. So, uh tune back in in a couple of weeks. But if that doesn't tide you over, don't worry. We will still be active online. Uh, you can check us out on our Twitter or our Facebook or Instagram at Ashes Ashes Cast. Uh, we will still be watching our subreddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. And most importantly, we will be on our Discord chat community every single day. You can find a link to that on the website ashesashes.org. Just click the community link 
Discord invite, and you can install that. It runs on your phone, it runs in your browser, it runs in a program you can install on your computer. It's an incredible group of people. They've been an invaluable resource for all sorts of episodes, but also these migrant episodes coming up. And we would love to see all of you there. I've learned so much stuff from that community, and I, I really can't understate how important they are to me and how supportive they are of each other. It's a great place. Um, I love all of you on there. So, you know, thank you for those of you who listen and are on that community. Y'all are great. Thank you. Yeah. Also, use this break as a chance to uh, catch up on older episodes if you haven't already uh, or share them with friends and family. We talked about surveillance in here and we actually have quite a few episodes specifically on technology surveillance and the, the use of our privacy, abuse of our privacy, and the ways our devices are manipulated to get us to engage with them constantly. And that is episode nine, nothing left to hide. Episode 15, that Facebook episode. Episode 35, plugged in on why our, uh, the design of our technology is making everything worse, not better. Episode 51, Eyes on Me, on medical surveillance. And episode 68, Mask Off, about facial tracking in the real world. Yeah, and all of these are tagged now on our website. If you go to ashesashes.org, you'll see a list of tags of a variety of topics. So if you really want to find something uh, that looks interesting to you, you can just click that and it makes that list of almost 100 episodes much less imposing. So we encourage you to check that out. It's a useful little tool, and uh, we're happy we were finally able to deploy it. But until next week, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use advertising to support this show. So if you appreciate it, would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, giving us uh, five stars on your favorite podcast host like iTunes, or supporting us through patreon.com slash ashesashescast. Every little bit helps, and we appreciate it. You can also get in touch with us through email. It's contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We read them and we appreciate them. And if email is something you don't enjoy, and let's be honest, nobody does, you can give us a call too. We've got a phone number. We've been taking voicemails down. At some point, we're going to turn it into a call-in episode, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. Our number for that is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. And that is a United States number. If you are an international listener, feel free to record yourself and email it to us and we can integrate it in that way as well. Uh, we love hearing from all of you. And every time we get a voicemail, I'm super excited to listen. So be a part of that. Uh, tell us things you want to hear, thoughts you have, uh, anything. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of this show in any way we can. And we love hearing from listeners. So uh, don't be afraid to reach out. Next week, we've got, oh, okay. oh we'll be on a break. So tune in, find us on your social media to get an update of when we'll be back. And we can't wait to see you then. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Goodbye. I'm stopping. Okay. <laughs>